Uh, last week we talked about um, trials. We talked about trials that we fall into, right? Those things of life that come our way and that we don't have any control over. But praise God, they don't have to control us, right? We can still be controlled by the Spirit of God in the midst of uncontrollable circumstances. In the midst of chaos, there can still be calm because God is still in charge. He's still at the helm. He's still on the throne. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to be talking about not trials, but temptation. Say temptation. Yeah, but say it, say it in a really like sinister voice, like temptation. That, ooh, that was good, Rody. Ooh, do that again, Rody. Whoa, yeah, ooh, that was good. Yeah, temptation. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I want to know what James says about temptation. That's where we're still in James 1. And I want to know what James says about temptation because I recognize, I recognize that there's a war going on around us. There's a spiritual warfare going on around us between armies of darkness and armies of light, between good and evil. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to work for the opposition. I don't want to work. I'm interested in working for God's side. I'm interested in working for the armies of light. And that means resisting temptation. So... Let's go to Roman, or let's go to James, I'm sorry, James 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Is there somebody who would like to read verses 13 through 18 for us, either from the Bible that you have or on the screen that will also be on the screen? Is there somebody? If not, I'm, I'm going to pick, yes, Sharon. Yeah, go ahead. And you know what? Actually, I have to put a microphone in your face if that's okay, because um, that way people online can hear you as well. Is that all right? All right. You can stay where you are. I'll come to you. There you go. Okay, so go ahead and read for us, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Yes. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you again and into your presence. We ask, Lord, as we explore your word together, that your spirit would be in us and guide us, Lord, that we would be able to hear and receive what you have for us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. In times of chaos, like we find ourselves in in this world today, our old self begins to find new influence. The UN uh, reported uh, earlier on, I think it was in June, that domestic violence has risen by 20% since the beginning of our uh, quarantine, of our lockdown. Partly that's because uh, victims and abusers are now in the same spot and they can't leave. And part of it is because as stress increases, as the general stress increases, we begin to fall back on old patterns, old behaviors, uh, destructive patterns, destructive behaviors that gave us at one time a sense of fulfillment or a sense of accomplishment or a sense of acceptance or security and we fall back on those things uh, because we're looking desperately, as the stress increases in our lives, we're looking for that assurance that those things bring. And we know that those things are empty. We know that uh, those things don't actually give us anything. We know the emptiness that they have, but they're strong, strong desires during these trying times. Our temptations have intensified more. And so I think James uh, here writing for us uh, is something that we need to pay attention to. So let's look at some of these verses together. 13, when, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. 
That's my daughter. Someone once said, temptation is an opportunity to do a good thing in a bad way. Desire is actually a good thing. It's good to have desire. It's godly to have desire. Without desire, you would never eat. Without desire, you would never drink. You, you would die of thirst and hunger. Without desire, the human race would cease to exist. Desire is a good thing. It's good to have desire. The problem comes when temptation comes in and says, I can get you that good thing in a quicker, shorter, easier way than the way that God has put out. I can get you that good thing in a bad way. And it comes strongest when things are going very bad. That's when our own evil desire drags us away. The imagery here is really vivid, right? It's like, it's like you're speaking with a group of people and then something comes and it lays hands on you and it drags you away. And Maybe you resisted it at first, but it drags you away to, to isolate you, right? To get you by yourself. Because it's a lot easier to be tempted by these things if we're not around other Christians. It's a lot easier to be tempted by these things when we're by ourselves and we're isolated. That's why being a part of a family like this situation here, being a part of a church is so vital to our faith. It's not because you are somehow pleasing God by coming to church. It's because you need other people around you to help you so that you're not isolated, so that you're not picked off. If you watch uh, uh, a herd of uh, animals being pursued by wolves, who are they going to go after? They're going to go after the ones that are straggling behind, the ones that are apart from the pack, because those are the ones that they can hone in on. If the, if the herd stays together, it's harder for the animals, it's harder for the wolves to pick out individuals and isolate them and drag them away. So each person is tempted when they're dragged away and enticed, laid hands like hooks, like those hooks that they used to have at the, you know, on a stage. Exactly, in vaudeville, and somebody would be you know, just hacking it up on stage, and so a gigantic hook would come out. and That's what temptation does. It kind of comes out of nowhere and carries you off stage. Wow, I got, a, I got away from my text on that. <laughs> Verse 15, yeah, vaudeville, man. That would Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, you've been, you've been dragged away. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. If you went in your Bibles back to the very beginning uh, back to Genesis, and you looked in Genesis 4, you would see how temptation began to wreak havoc. And I'm not talking about the classic scene of uh, Eve and Adam in the garden and with the tree. I'm actually talking about the very next sin, the very next temptation that happens, and that's between Cain and Abel. If you remember, they were brothers, Cain and Abel, uh, sons of Adam and Eve. And they're both trying to please God. They're both offering things to God. They have a strong desire, a, go- a godly desire to please God, something that's good. And they both bring an offering to God, and God, it says that God accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's offering. We don't quite know why. There's no real full explanation. We have some ideas about why, but we don't have, it's not in the text. The text doesn't explain why, but it just says that God accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's offering. And Cain is left feeling very low, feeling very downcast, feeling very troubled. He had this strong desire to please God. It didn't work out how he wanted it to. And this is what it says here. It says that God came to Cain 
And God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Listen to what he says here. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Watch out. In other words, God's saying to Cain, watch out. Watch out. I, I see you right now. I see that you're downcast. I see that you're angry. I see you're in a low place. Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. You must master it. And what happens? Of course, Cain doesn't master sin. In fact, that strong desire to please God begins to produce in him frustration and anger and sadness. And he begins to look at his brother enviously. And he decides he, in order to recompense his brother, he has to kill him. And that's what he does. We have the first murder in Scripture. is because Cain is unable to master the temptation of sin. It has enticed him. It has conceived given birth to sin and has resulted in death, the death of his brother and the death even of his own sense, his own sensibility, his own conscience. When we expose ourselves to sin and walk down that path, it corrupts us in a sense. Sin comes in and begins to eat away at our moral bearings so that maybe you wouldn't kill somebody outright, but after a life of giving into temptation, of a life of giving into sin, it has prepared you to engage with that. And sometimes it has to take a work of God to strip you of all those things and reestablish a strong moral bearing inside of you. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit, that God comes in. He doesn't leave us like children to do our own whims, but he comes in and reforms us. That is a work of God. James tells us that when, we, when desire produces, when we begin to follow our desires, they produce sin. And sin, when it's full grown, not, not right away, see, not right away. When it's full grown, it takes time for those things to build up in our lives. So that it might be right that one, oh, one little sin, one little thing, doesn't make that big of a difference. But what it does is it puts you on a path that begins to wear down a little bit of those bearings in your moral life. And when it's full grown, if you allow that sin to continue to lead you, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Sin will always result in death. That little side flirtation, it might seem innocent enough, but as desire grows, you better recognize that death is coming. So stop it now. Cut it off at the root. Our small justification of evil today will put us on a path of destruction tomorrow. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. See, Satan wants you to believe that God does not have your best interests at heart, that he is withholding something good from you. God doesn't want you to have that good thing, see. You have that good desire for that good thing. God doesn't want you to have it. That's what Satan says. If you don't reach out and grab that for yourself, God is never going to let you have it. You'll never be a full person. God wants to cripple your life. The tactic of our enemy is always a scare tactic. Isn't that interesting? It's always a scare tactic. God's not on your side. He's against you. You've got to make a way for yourself. It's all on you. 
One theologian, he remarked this. He said, the will to survive is so strong that it transmutes easily into the will to power. The will to survive, that good desire that we have to survive, is so strong in us that it quickly transforms into a will to power. That's why for some people, when they begin to pursue things like money, money is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong necessarily with money. It's good to have money to purchase food and to eat and to have a place to live. That's not bad. But people who begin to pursue, they begin to go down there. The will to survive, to have enough money to survive, becomes so powerful of an urge, so powerful of the desire, that it begins to produce a will to power. And now all of a sudden, I have to control the financial situation. And all of a sudden, I have to do everything it takes to protect my financial security. And even if that means giving into greed, and even if that means giving into bad practices, or even if that means rejecting time with my family, or even if that means um, compromising in my values, I'm going to do it because my will to survive has now changed into a will to power, a will to dominate. See, that's how temptation works. It doesn't start out that way, but it slowly it moves into that direction. God has a good plan for our lives. See, that's, that's the lie. The lie is that if you don't look after it, God won't. But that's not true at all. God has a good plan for your life. He does. And it might look hard at times, but don't allow impatience to tempt you. God has got a good plan for you. James tells us here that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Do you know what that means? That means he doesn't decide one day to be good and the next day to be bad. He doesn't decide one day to work for you and the next day to work against you. That's not how God works. He is for you every day. Don't be tempted to be impatient, friends. God is not withholding anything good from you, from his children. He has a plan to bring you greater life, greater freedom, greater deliverance, greater security, greater stability. So we stand up under temptation by reminding ourselves that God is not withholding anything good from us and that the trials of life that we have to walk through are a part of his process of refining us. That's what we talked about last week, that these trials are part of a process of refining us. God is for us and not against us. Let's go to verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of faith, through word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What is this word of truth that they're talking, he's talking about here? The word of truth through which God has chosen to give us birth. Well, first, I think it's the word heard at the beginning of the universe when God spoke creation into being. All right? If you remember in, in Genesis 1, God speaks creation into being. That's the word of truth. You see, God had no need for creation to exist. He wasn't up there missing out on things. All right? God has, is completely fine just being God, but he spoke creation into being because he desired us to be here. He desired us to be in existence with him. He didn't want to walk away. He didn't want to walk away from the opportunity to be together with us. Friend, you're alive today for one reason only, and that's because God said yes to you. Before time began, he looked through the future. He looked through the future and he said, Josh, oh, I want him to exist. Yes, Maureen, yes. I want her to exist. 
He looked before all time and saw you and said yes to you. That's the word of truth that God has spoken over you. He chose to give you birth through his word of truth that he spoke at creation. But that wasn't enough for God. You see, it wasn't enough to say yes to our existence. Because very quickly, through giving in to temptation, we left our relationship with God. We still existed, but we were separate from God. And so God spoke another word of truth, and he entered into a covenant with Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to be my people, and I will be your God. I want you to follow after me, and I promise I will be with you forever. He didn't have to do that. There was no need for God to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham. There was no need for God to give us the law. We should have been grateful enough simply to have existed, simply to be given the gift of life. We had already rejected God, and God would have been completely satisfied or completely uh, uh, justified in saying that we uh, will just go on existing, and then we'll die, and we'll be separated from him. But he was not satisfied with that. He said, I want to have a relationship with these people. I don't want to reject them forever. So he comes, and he enters into it, and he says, yes. It's a word of truth that God speaks to Abraham. Yes, I want to be in a relationship with you. We didn't do anything to deserve that. And after all of that, after creation, after covenant relationship, then God sent his own son. He sent Jesus to say yes to you in the most profound way possible. By paying the price for our sin. When you were dragged away and tempted, when sin was produced in you, and at the moment it conceived, and go back, Go back one slide. At the moment that it conceived, and just before it gave birth to death, Jesus stepped in and said, I'll die in your place. We had done all the work. We'd done it. We had, desire had come into us. It had produced sin. We had done everything wrong. And then at the very last moment, just when we were supposed to die, in fact, Paul says, at just the right time, Christ came in and said, I'll I'll do that. You do the sin, you do the desire, and I'll take the death. What a miracle. What a miracle. And God didn't have to do that either, did he? First, he spoke you into existence. He said, I'm looking, I want you to exist. And then he said, I want to know you. I want you to know me. And then he said, you know what, I want to pay the price for your sin so that you can be with me. Not just know me, but be with me. Brothers and sisters, I wish that you would understand the depth of what James is talking about here. Go ahead, go to the next slide. When he says that God chose to give you birth through a word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Do you know what a first fruit is? This is, this is when Israel, in ancient Israel, uh, when you had your first crop from your field or your first lambs were born, you would take the very first thing that was produced and you would bring it to the temple and you would dedicate it to God and it would be a part of the temple. In fact, the first child that you had would be dedicated to God as a sort of a way of saying uh, this This produce that you're giving us, Lord, this is all yours, and I want to give you the very best. I want to give you the very first. 
And in fact, here, even in uh, local, it goes extends beyond ancient Israel. This is a common, a common theme. Uh, if you go to the Chinook or the Tillamook or the uh, Klatsop uh, tribes in this area, the first salmon of the season is precious. It's set aside. Uh, if you are in a Chinook a community, the first salmon is baked whole and then it's distributed amongst everybody there. Everybody gets to partake in the first fruit of the season because it's, it's a sense of honoring that. It's a sense of honoring both the salmon and the community, right? A sense of elevating this first fruit. And in ancient Israel, every year, the first of your lambs, the first of your grain, Jesus himself was dedicated in the temple. You can read that in the book of Luke. Jesus was dedicated. He was the firstborn of Mary. He was Mary's firstborn son. I want you to understand. I really want you to to tune into this. When God looks out over all creation, he sees you as a first fruit of everything he has created. When he looks out, he sees you. He says, you, you are my first fruit. You are that thing which I so treasure, which I so desire. Scripture says that he watches over us like a mother with a firstborn son. God watches over you as you sleep. And then when you wake up, his face lights up. And all throughout the day, he watches for us. He, his plans for us are good. He's looking for your future. He sees you where you are. And accepts you for who you are. He's already stepped in to pay the price for every sin that you have or do or will ever create. God's love is greater by far than any trial or temptation or sin or destruction or death. In fact, the love of God can overcome all of those things. And not just, not just once in your life, not just when you first come to Jesus, not just in that first moment, but don't you know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever? And the same Jesus that he saved you yesterday is going to save you today and he's going to save you tomorrow. And he's going to step inside. And he's going to step in front of sin and take death for you every single moment of every single day because you are his first fruit. The first one's the ones that he sets aside, the ones that he says, these are my precious people. These are the people that I love. From your eyes, God may be doing all sorts of things, good and bad, but from the eyes of God, you are the firstborn of all creation. His joy, his heart, his desire is to be with you. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion. Communion is is an act. It's It's not just juice and cracker. It's symbolic. This is symbolic. So many things in life are symbolic. and I'm not necessarily one for symbolism, but I understand the symbolism of this. Because it's recognizing that there was a price that had to be paid for this unity. There was a price that had to be paid for Jesus to step in at the very last moment and pay for our sin. And the price wasn't yours to pay. In fact, Scripture tells us that you didn't pay a thing. In fact, nothing you could do could earn that. And yet it was given to you because somebody paid that price for you. The price was paid, but not by you. 
It was paid by Christ. And it says that when Jesus was talking to his disciples about this and describing it to them, he took a glass and some bread, and he took the bread and he, and he took it and he broke it. And he said, guys, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you take this, remember me. Would you remember Christ with me as we take this together? And then it says he took some wine. And he said, this this is it, guys. This is the new covenant. A covenant which goes beyond uh, following after a certain law. A covenant that's paid for in my blood. When you take this, when you drink it, think about me. Remember my sacrifice. Remember how I stepped in for you. Would you take this, friends, and drink it with me? We take communion as an act of remembrance and as an act of community. This is something that we get to do together. And obedience to God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you... Lord, that you have not rejected your people. I thank you that you are still faithful to us. And Lord, I want to pray specially for us today. If you are in a place where you feel like you've struggled with temptation, that temptation has gotten the upper hand of you, maybe you've even been drug away and enticed, would you just put your hands out in front of you as just a, a way of saying, Lord, this is what I have, this is... This is my life right now. This is what I'm going through. These are the temptations that I've been experiencing. Lord, these are the ways that I've failed. These are the ways that I have given in. Lord, these are the sins that have been produced in me. 1 John says that when we ask and confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and that he forgives us all of our sins. And so would you just in your own heart or with uh, quietly to yourself, you can pray this prayer with me and say, Lord Jesus, I, I come before you today bearing my sins. And I know that I don't deserve any grace from you. But I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sins. And I believe that you are powerful, powerful enough to take away my sins. So forgive me, Lord. I confess I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Lord. There's nothing magical or mystical about the Christian experience. It's very, very real that when we confess our sins to God, that he comes in and relieves us of those burdens. So friends, I have nothing more to offer you than this, that God himself has forgiven your sins in Christ Jesus because he loves you, he cares for you, he desires to be with you. 
That is the long and the short of it. That's everything. And Lord, I pray that as we continue on from this place, that we would be mindful, Lord, mindful of your presence and mindful of your grace to us. Thank you, Jesus, for everything that you've done. We accept your grace. And Lord, I just pray right now that we would be able to forgive ourselves and others. Lord, it's, it's amazing to me, but you have offered us forgiveness free, free of charge. Yet at the same time, on so many occasions, we fail to forgive those who have offended us or even ourselves. Lord, give us the strength that we need to forgive ourselves and forgive others. We ask that you would help us as we have received forgiveness from you now. Help us to turn around and extend that forgiveness to other people. In your holy and precious name, Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. God be with you. God go with you.